Red Sanders once said winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. But he died over 60 years ago, and when it comes to mixed martial arts, he's kind of wrong. Of course, winning is far better than losing, but fans and fighters often take away moral victories they hold on to proudly. Something pretty unique to MMA. If you lose the Super Bowl, you're a failure. Nobody cares if you ran more yards than the experts expected on the number one defense. But when Nate Diaz nearly finishes Leon Edwards in the last seconds after getting soundly beat for five whole rounds, he and his fans left that night feeling pretty satisfied over that late fight scare despite the loss. And look at the green-haired legend Chris Matino, who survived 97% of 15 minutes with Sean O'Malley as a late replacement and had the whole crowd losing their minds when he didn't get those final 27 seconds. So with that in mind, today we're going to take a look at 10 of the most unique and interesting consolation prizes that came with bitter defeat. I'm Tommy from MMA On Point, and these are 10 moral victories fighters took from major losses. Number 10. Paul Felder Saves the Day in a lot of ways, the pandemic era of the UFC was the Paul Felder Show. The guy did commentary on about 7,300 cards, he was clowning randos on social media to the delight of everyone, and stepping in from the booth to change into his Reeboks like Superman to go corner his buddy Jared Gordon on Fight Island, only to come right back to the booth afterwards. The Irish Dragon was at his peak of good guy commentator popularity, but of course Felder is also a fighter, and he hadn't fought since COVID took over the world. His last about a war with Dan Hooker that saw him lose a narrow split decision. At 36, the sun was setting on his career, and Paul only wanted to take fights that made sense to him. As a result, he was left in this weird top 10 limbo until he did one last good guy Paul Felder act. UFC Fight Night 182 had a major problem. Less than a week before the show, headliner Islam Makachev was forced out with a staph infection. Hmm, gross leaving this card utterly busted. Without that main event against Rafael Dos Anjos, I mean, it was looking pretty grim. Then Paul Felder said, you know what? I'm gonna use up one of my last fights, what would turn out to be his last fight, and save this random fight night that needs saving. And so he did. On a week's notice, step up, make weight, and have the fight of the night with RDA. He would lose soundly, but it didn't matter. He saved the show. He entertained the masses. Everyone was singing Felder's praises following the card. Another stand-up moment from a stand-up guy. Number 9. Misha Tate Outlasts Everyone Heading into her rematch with Misha Tate, Ronda Rousey's average fight time was 1 minute and 46 seconds. At just 7-0, the Rowdy One was already a massive star, the reason the UFC made a women's division in the first place, crowning her bantamweight champ before she ever stepped foot in the octagon. The first bout with Tate was for Strikeforce's 135-pound title, and the champ would get armbarred late in round one. Nobody had ever made it out of the first five minutes with Rousey, let alone gave her any real trouble but for Liz Carmouche's neck crank. All that changed at UFC 168. Tate would be the first to survive past the first and would end up as the longest bout Ronda ever had, at times, especially early on, giving Rousey trouble. Go back and watch it, she scores a takedown, she's very active on the ground against her, and there are a few shots that could have really turned the tide. Can you imagine if Tate had ended Ronda Mania that early on? Who knows where the sport would be right now? Misha would ultimately get finished via armbar a minute into the third, but immediately afterwards, Goldie mentioned how impressive it was that the fight went on so long. The rest of Rousey's career victories would all come in a minute six or under, making what Tate did all the more impressive. And it was the only only real success you can point to against the champ until her eventual downfall at the shin of Holly Holm. Number 8. Anderson Silva Goes the Distance there were a lot of people saying yikes when the UFC announced that the legendary Anderson Silva was going to be fighting Israel Adesanya at UFC 234. On paper, it's a beautiful sentiment. You have the previous generation's greatest and most impressive striker versus a man many felt and still feel is the next iteration of the spider at middleweight. A sort of passing of the generational torch, if you will. But that's all fine and rosy in theory. In practice, torch passing usually looks like Matt Hughes versus Hoist Gracie, and Silva hadn't really won a bout of any significance in seven years. I'm not counting the Derek Brunson win 
because you cannot convince me he won that fight. Regardless, Anderson was well into the twilight of his career, and it just seemed unnecessarily cruel to send this 43-year-old out there with the next big thing in the sport. Well, we were all wrong and should just drink a big, tall glass of shut-up juice. The fight was wonderful. The build-up all week was super emotional, everybody was crying, and what we got instead of a brutal beating was an entertaining display of slick and measured striking, a chess match of sorts between the two greats, with Adesanya coming away with 30-27s on two of three cards. But the fact that Silva was there and in it and looked like he was enjoying himself going the distance instead of being mercilessly KO'd, it was just good feels all around, man. And as Adesanya's legacy grows, Anderson's moral victory on that night is only going to look better and better. Number 7. Vandy almost beats Mark Hunt when this bout took place, it was not seen as any kind of victory for Vanderlei Silva, but a robbery. As time has gone on, however, the perspective has changed. We're at Pride Shockwave 2004. Vandy's won the middleweight GP. He's been defending the middleweight title. He hasn't lost in five years. He's basically the fucking man. Since the Japanese fans apparently love watching their hero be murdered, Sakuraba was for a third time scheduled to fight Silva, but when he was forced out just a few days before the show, the axe murderer's crazy ass agreed to fight Mark Hunt instead, who at the time had anywhere between 60 and 80 pounds on the Brazilian. Now, Hanto was relatively new to the MMA scene. He was an established K1 badass, but he'd only ever had two MMA bouts, the first of which he would lose via submission to Yoshida. But make no mistake, Mark Hunt looked fantastic here. In fact, about as good as he's ever looked. This fight was so fun. There were some wild exchanges. Vandy got knocked down three or four times. Hunt tried to butt bomb. Randy Couture gave everybody flowers. It was a lovely time. Ultimately, Hunt's power and, you know, half a person's size advantage over Silva was too much even though Vandy did a fantastic job of utilizing grappling to control in the later rounds. When the split decision came in for Hunto, it was seen as a shock loss that seemed unfathomable and a star turn for the Samoan on the MMA scene. Silva's first ever pride loss. In hindsight, though, all things considered, the massive size disadvantage and the short notice change in opponents, it's one of the most badass things Silva's ever done. And the fact that he even survived to the final horn is a moral victory enough, let alone that he put on a kick-ass show. The next time he fought at heavyweight, things wouldn't go so so well, but this fight was a positive despite the loss on his record. Number 6. Raging Al goes 5 with the Eagle it's April of 2018, and the lightweight division is a hot mess. Habib Nurmagomedov and interim champion Tony Ferguson were finally going to meet at UFC 223 after four previous attempts at making the bout. Current champ Conor McGregor was to be stripped the moment the fight began for not defending after 511 days, making Tony versus Habib for the vacant title. But Ferguson's knee exploded when he tripped over a production cable at the start of fight week, which led to featherweight champ Max Holloway stepping in, but he was deemed medically unfit the morning of weigh-ins. Oh, and Conor attacked a bus of fighters for the honor of Artem Lobov, that also complicated things on fight week. Anthony Pettis was the next choice to replace Ferguson, his main card fight canceled because McGregor threw a dolly at his opponent's face, but he couldn't make championship weight so he dropped out. Nice guy Paul Felder offered his services, of course he did, but New York said he had to be ranked. His opponent ally Quinto was 11th, and so he would get his chance at the lightweight title against Nurmagomedov. Except not technically, see? He didn't make championship weight either, and so he would only have been champion in the eyes of the UFC, not any of the sport's governing bodies but if a B beat him, he would be the official champion. This sport is insane. Raging Al was on a five-fight win streak. He was a fan favorite. He wouldn't come close to winning on that night by any stretch of the imagination, but Nurmagomedov was a destroyer of worlds, and Al stuffed the majority of his takedowns and kept his control time to 10 minutes. The fight turned into a bit of a slugfest in the middle, an unusual bout for Habib. When the decision was read, fans were unsure how they felt about the title-changing hands for the victory, but one thing they were certain about was that Raging Al went five rounds with the best, and made him to an extent fight his fight. Number 5. Lindo Venata debuts with a bang. 
It is one of the most epic debuts in UFC history, and Lando Venata didn't even win. Not that anybody expected him to even put up a fight, really. The Jackson Wink product would be thrown directly to the Wolves in what was seemingly a no-win scenario, but for the fact that the UFC probably appreciated his willingness to fill in on short notice. Two weeks before UFC Fight Night 91, the main event fell apart when Mike Chiesa was forced out of the headlining bout against Tony Ferguson. El Kakui was on a seven-fight win streak. He just finished Edson Barbosa. That fight was supposed to be Habib. Had he beat Chiesa, the title was next. A long issue had Tony sidelined for the first half of 2016, and so finding a replacement here was important because he wanted to get back in the cage. Enter Lando. The UFC offered, he came. The bout was bumped down to the co-main event, but the two-rounders stole the show. Venata was game and had nothing to lose, fighting wild and loose against the wild and loose Ferguson. It was a good old-fashioned slobber knocker, as Jim Ross would say, and near the end of the first, Lando would almost finish the future interim champion. How do you like them apples? The second round devolved quickly with Venata getting subbed, but the fight had everyone buzzing that night, and the fact he almost finished Ferguson in the middle of his epic 12-fight win streak had fans only praising Lando after his defeat. Number 4. Joe Soto Surprises Everyone who in the actual fuck is Joe Soto? That's what a whole bunch of people were saying the day before UFC 177, when the main event was changed from a highly anticipated rematch between TJ Dillashaw and Hennem Burrell for the Bantamweight title, to TJ versus whoever the hell Joe Soto is. Turns out Joe was meant to fight on the prelims of the card, his UFC debut coming over from Tachi Palace. But when Burrell passed out cutting weight, this wet napkin flimsy card was in desperate need of some stakes at the top if the UFC wanted to ask people to spend money on it. And while only 125,000 would, Soto's decision to step in and take on the champ would end up defining why you do know his name now. Coming in as a plus 900 underdog, let's just say there wasn't any expectation that Joe would get a win here. But what virtually nobody anticipated is that he would give a better performance against Dillashaw than did former champion and murder god Hennem Burrell the fight previous when TJ took his strap. Joe in all likelihood probably won the second round, and while the champ was never in serious trouble, nobody saw this going into the fifth. Dillashaw would finish things up with a head kick, but Soto was given major props for stepping in there and hanging with the champ, raising his stock massively after his promotional debut and defining his MMA career. Number 3. Dan Hardy Refuses to Submit I have a confession to make. I didn't like Dan Hardy in the lead-up to his welterweight title challenge against George St. Pierre at UFC 111. I was a huge GSP mark. And who did this guy think he was with his mohawk and his cocky smile, training with Matt Sarah on UFC primetime? And those are not pajamas that George walks out in, okay? That is his gi. How dare you talk about his gi? I was all kinds of flustered and ready for this Englishman to get his ass kicked by GSP. I had no idea that myself and many others would become Dan Hardy fans on that night. What happened at UFC 111 is truly the definition of moral victory. St. Pierre would be awarded 50 on all three judges' scorecards, Hardy as low as 43. He landed four significant strikes, GSP landed 14 times that, 11 takedowns, and had over 20 minutes of control time in a 25-minute fight. Tommy, the century is a burial. Where do we get to the victory here? Come on! Well, besides enduring what had to be beyond frustrating on the biggest night of his entire life, where the outlaw won a ton of fans and respect is how he survived six submission attempts, specifically an armbar in the first, that looked to be about as bad as an armbar can be without bones coming out and felt like it went on for a week, as well as a Kimura in the fourth that appeared inescapable but for tapping. It showed an incredible heart and drive in Hardy that a lot of fans didn't realize was there. St. Pierre was in awe of his opponent's grit post-fight, and Dan badassly stated, I don't know the meaning of top. The man's been a legend ever since. Number 2. Uriah Faber Fights Through the Pain 
In a video for the UFC in 2016, Uriah Faber told the stories of his three favorite fights from his legendary career, and number two would be a loss to Mike Brown in their featherweight title rematch at WEC 41 in Faber's own backyard, no less, Sacktown. If that doesn't illustrate the power of these moral victories in the minds of fighters, I don't know what will. In the first round, Faber would completely mangle his right hand after bouncing it off Brown's skull. It was badly broken, and for the remainder of the fight, he would be forced to only throw lefts or elbows. Then, in the third round, he dislocated his thumb and broke his left hand. From then on, the California kid was throwing bows like he was at a ludicrous concert in 2001. The fight was awesome despite the injuries. A fantastic pace, really exciting back and forth action. Faber nearly got a sub late in the fight as well. He would lose the decision on all three cards, but still managed to win rounds and make a competitive bout. Uriah learned how tough and versatile he was on that night, and listening to him talk about it seven years later, you can tell being able to endure and still compete in his condition really made an impact on how he perceived himself as a fighter. Super cool stuff. Number 1. Vitor Belfort nearly does the undoable the biggest benefactor of the debacle that was the cancellation of UFC 151 was surprisingly Vitor Belfort. The Brazilian, competing at middleweight at the time, offered to take on light heavyweight champion John Jones when he heard the card was off. It was too late at that point, but when 152's new headliner Lyoto Machida got cold feet about taking his rematch with Jones without a full camp, Vitor got a call back and would get a shot at 205 pound gold despite having not fought in the division for more than four years. Vitor called John the greatest fighter of all time in the lead up to the bout and came in with a broken hand, as well as some elevated testosterone, but that's another story for another list. Anyway, the Phenom didn't have any delusions about this one, and neither did sportsbooks. But about a minute into the fight, Jones scored a takedown, and then the unthinkable happened. From his back, Belfort secured a nasty armbar. It was extended, and it was doing damage. John would escape by sheer will and go on to dominate the rest of the fight, winning via Americana in the fourth. But immediately afterwards, the champ told Joe Rogan that armbar was locked in. And in later interviews, he explained that he thought that was it, that everything he ever worked for would be gone in that moment to that armbar. Jones has since revealed that the submission attempt did permanent damage. It's the closest anyone has ever come to finishing the greatest fighter of all time, and chances are Belfort will be wearing that moral feather in his cap for all time. Huge shout out to Max Randall for editing this video together. Follow him on Twitter at Max underscore Randall. A big, big thank you to Ben Rosette, who provided that sweet tune you heard in the intro. Check out his music by clicking the link in the description and go give him a follow on his Instagram and Twitter page at Ben Rosette. Thanks for watching. Please give us a like and subscribe. We've got three new videos or more for you every single week. Let us know what you thought of the video in the comments below. Follow On Point MMA on Twitter and have yourself a wonderful day.